Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Renit Malka, and today I'm joined by Dr. Hamilton to talk about nasal deformities and their treatment with rhinoplasty. Welcome back, Dr. Hamilton. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Before we start, I'll again quickly note that we've broken down our discussion on rhinoplasty into two in-depth episodes. Our first episode on rhinoplasty for nasal breathing really lays the framework for understanding rhinoplasty that we'll be building upon during this episode, so we'd recommend you listen to that one first if you haven't already. Our second episode today focuses more on techniques and rhinoplasty for nasal deformity. So with that said... Rhinoplasty is used to treat a great variety of nasal deformities that can be either developmental or due to trauma. When a patient presents to your clinic for rhinoplasty, what are the typical categories of concerns they may have? Well, the most common thing probably that people are concerned about is their nose in general just looking too big. And usually what that means is that they have a dorsal hump. But if we try to break it down in a more analytical way, the more common problems I think that I see would be a dorsal hump, a crooked nose, a bulbous tip, or maybe the nose just being overprojected in general, or sometimes a bit of a saddle nose. But that's kind of the big, most common group. But if we really organize that, you can have problems with the tip, whether it's the shape, the projection, the rotation, the amount of columnar show. You can have problems with the dorsum. People can have a dorsal hump, a saddle nose, or a crooked nose, or even problems with the width. So the nasal bones might be too wide, they might be too narrow, they might have pinching in the middle third that causes sort of a discontinuity of that brow tip aesthetic line that is along the edge of the dorsum. Or sometimes the problems really just fall under the general category of asymmetry. So the nose might be crooked, the alar margins might be at different heights, uh, the tip might be a little bit twisted, things like that. We discussed much of general nasal anatomy in our prior rhinoplasty episode, so we won't rehash that now. But when considering rhinoplasty for appearance, specifically, what are some of the main anatomical considerations you're keeping in mind? Well, I think it's really the same in most ways. A good-looking nose can be a good-working nose, and a good-working nose can be a good-looking nose. So I don't think that it's necessary to have to sacrifice a breathing result for a good-looking nose. And it's important that as a surgeon, you keep that in mind, but it's also important that the patient understands that. Many times, patients will suppose, presuppose that they have to have worse breathing just to have a good-looking nose. And with a little bit of education, you can let them know that that doesn't have to be the case. It's really, really critical, and we'll talk about this uh, a little bit later, I think, but the most important thing that you can figure out as a beginning rhinoplasty surgeon is what is the shape that you're trying to make. And a lot of that depends on the shape of the nasal tip. That's not all of it, but it's a big part of it. In the tip, tip support is often a challenging problem when operating on someone's nose. We tend to try to think of the nasal tip support mechanisms as falling into two categories, major support mechanisms and minor support mechanisms. The major support mechanisms are really comprised of the size and shape and the strength of the lower lateral cartilages. So just what is their material consistency and what is their shape and what is their orientation? We often don't talk about that as much. The medial curl feet sort of attaching to the caudal septum by way of the membranous septum is also important. 
if the medial pleural feet are quite splayed or if the medial pleura are short, then the tip support will, in many cases, be inadequate. And even if it's not inadequate prior to surgery, the healing forces of scar contracture can cause a loss in tip support if you don't do something to address the short medial pleura. And then the last thing that we consider one of the major tip support mechanisms is the scroll, and that's just the attachment from the lateral cura to the upper lateral cartilages. And in many people, that's a contiguous piece of cartilage that is just folded over on itself. And making that compound curve acts a bit like a spring so that the nasal tip can move, uh, but it also uh, lends quite a bit of structural integrity in the same way that folding a piece of paper might make it a bit stronger. The minor tip support mechanisms include things like the interdomal ligaments, and we call them ligaments, but they're histologically not really ligaments, but they kind of function that way. The dorsal septum near the anterior septal angle, which is made of cartilage. The length of the membranous septum, just the structure of the soft tissue envelope. So if someone has thick skin, that will actually provide some amount of support to the nose than uh, if someone has uh, thinner skin. Uh, the sesamoid or accessory cartilages in the lateral nasal wall uh, can contribute to uh, support there. And then in some regard, the nasal spine as it acts like the foundation for the base of the nose. When looking at the nasal tip, it's also important to assess the internal and external nasal valves. Even with people who don't have a breathing concern, you can often make the breathing a little bit better by performing a rhinoplasty, uh, and we certainly don't want to make it worse. So it's important to have sort of one rhinoplasty mind, which is independent from the patient's chief complaint. In other words, don't think of a rhinoplasty for nasal obstruction too terribly differently than one where the patient's mostly concerned with their appearance because the principles are all basically the same. Because many people will come with a concern with the size or shape of their dorsum, it's important to understand a couple of principles that are applicable that patients don't always instinctively get. The main thing is that if people have a dorsal hump, their nose will look narrower on the front view. If you take the hump down, then that will tend to make the nose look a little bit wider. In the case of many patients, that's actually a favorable thing because with a large dorsal hump, the nose can look excessively narrow on the front view and out of balance with the proportions of the rest of the facial features. So you just need to explain that to people. And I tend to do imaging of the patient's preoperative photos to try to give them an idea of uh, what they might look like after surgery and make sure that we share a common goal. And I'll often show that dorsum being a little bit wider on the front view. You could certainly narrow the nasal bones to get it to become narrower again. And in some cases, that's also very appropriate. So it really just depends on the patient's unique circumstances. And since we've already covered a pretty thorough discussion of differential diagnosis uh, in our prior episode, we'll deviate from the typical format here and instead talk about patient selection. What are you considering when deciding whether or not a patient is a good candidate for rhinoplasty? Well, I think the absolute most important characteristic that a patient can have is having expectations that are in sync with what the surgery can do for them. And so sometimes 
that's as obvious as someone who might say, well, you know, I just know that if I get my nose fixed, uh, you know, I'll get that promotion at work or, uh, you know, my boyfriend will not break up with me or something like that. Now, those things are uncommon, but it does happen occasionally that someone assigns a secondary outcome that's non-surgical to an operation on their nose. And that's a big red flag because I can't operate on someone's career. I can't operate on someone's relationship. So they have to understand that that we need to really focus on just the changes that will happen uh, to the shape of the nose. It's important also that you educate your patients about what a reasonable outcome is. And that doesn't mean to try to talk them down into accepting something that might be considered a less than ideal outcome. It just means that they need to know sort of what are the rules of the game. And so, for example, uh, if someone comes in and they have very thick skin and a big dorsal hump and they say, well, you know, I want the hump taken down. I don't like, you know, my tip is too big. And so, you know, you think you're going to make that less round. Uh, and I want a lot of definition. If, if these are all the goals, if you're deep projecting someone's nose, you know, we tend not to excise soft tissue during the rhinoplasty. So they have all the same amount of soft tissue that they had when they had the big nose. And now they have a much smaller framework underneath. So it's really, really difficult, if not impossible in some cases, to get them a nose that has that sort of definition that they like. And if they want to see you know, a real sharp tip and visible soft triangles. And, you know, if they bring in pictures of celebrities and it's all people with thin skin, you have to tell them that that's just not a nose uh, that they can have because of the limitations of of where we're starting. If you don't explain that in advance, uh, then not only will they be unhappy, but then it will just sound like you're making excuses after the fact. So it's always better to have, in my opinion, a longer consultation up front to set the stage to make sure uh, that what I think is a reasonable outcome is in line with what the patient would be happy with. And that's where I think that the imaging is so helpful because if I show them the pictures, sometimes I say, yeah, that's exactly it. I want that. And so then it's, then it's pretty easy because when I do the imaging, and I always do it myself because I'm doing the surgery in my head as I'm adjusting the pictures, you know, when I show them the pictures, if, if, if they're okay with it, then I think, well, this is great. And that's really the utility of that as a tool. They don't speak rhinoplasty. So it's too hard, I think, to use words because if I say more refined or something like that, that might mean one thing to me and something completely different uh, to the patient. So the pictures are really, really helpful. Sometimes there's a bit of uh, hesitation. I had this happen the other day. I showed someone the pictures and she looked at him just for a second and said, well, what, what else can you do? What else can we look at? Normally, that would be a little bit of a concerning response. But after a couple of minutes, unprompted, uh, she said, you know, actually, I kind of like this. It was just a little strange to see a new nose on my face, but I, I'm starting to kind of get used to it now. And so uh, what initially was a concern for me when she said that pretty quickly, I think, turned into a very reasonable response. Now, the other thing that can be a big red flag is if someone says, well, can you show me this, but can you, you know, just bring the tip up just like a little bit more or, you know, bring the bump down or, you know, this or that. And usually at that point, we're talking about fractions of a millimeter. And if a patient's satisfaction is dependent upon you hitting a target that is 
a sub-millimeter target, it's not likely to end with a happy patient. And so I just explained to them that, you know, whether it is the even minimal amount of edema that happens during surgery or the local anesthetic that we put in the nose, the feedback that I get at the end of the operation just isn't as precise as it would be as if I was whittling a nose out of wood or sculpting a nose out of clay. You know, when I see that shape, what I see is what I get. But when I see a shape in the operating room, I'm palpating, I'm pushing out edema, I'm trying to, you know, minimize the dead space. You know, there's a lot of wiggle room in there. And so the way I describe it to patients is that I have to know how wrong it should look during surgery so that later on it looks right. And sometimes I'll even describe this to them that that rhinoplasty is a four-dimensional operation, which might sound a little corny, but it's completely true. It's the three spatial dimensions, but then it's time. Because what they see at a week is not what they're going to have at two weeks or two months or two years. Uh, it just continues to evolve. And so to try to hit those long-term targets is really, really important. And that's why you need to see your patients back long-term. We developed, I shouldn't say we developed, we sort of showed that a pre-existing questionnaire that has had some utility in the business world, looking at patient, or sorry, looking at consumer decision-making practices, this survey was quite applicable to predicting satisfaction in facial plastic surgery patients. It's 13 questions. It's called a maximizer, satisficer, it's kind of a strange word, S-A-T-I-S-F-I-C-E-R, maximizer, satisficer, scale. Uh, it's 13 questions, and they can rate the answers from 1 to 7. So the highest score that you get is a 91. The lowest is a 13. I think either one of those extremes would be a questionable result. But in general, the higher the score, the more someone is trending toward that maximizer side. And what we showed in our study was that regardless of the type of surgery that we did, and we divided people into people who had more aesthetic concerns, people who had breathing concerns, and people who were kind of coming for more reconstructive type surgery, that across the board, the only thing that predicted patient satisfaction was trending more towards the satisficer end of the spectrum. And so we tried to clarify in the manuscript that it's not a screening tool. It's not that, oh, you got over 55, so you don't get surgery. It's not that. But it, it's objective information that allows me to have a very different conversation with the patient and just say, you know, this is what your score was. You know, we might have a little bit harder time uh, because you may have a tendency to sort of not look at your face after surgery, but to zoom in, you know, almost like a jeweler with a loop uh, looking at different parts of your nose, and that may have a tendency to make you less satisfied with the outcome. And almost all the time, people say, yeah, I know that about myself. <laughs> and so it's good to have that conversation up front. And those people tend to do quite well because now they know that you know that that's just how they are. And we've talked about it up front. And they know by talking about that, that this is not the sort of thing uh, that's just that precise, that, that I can usually get people really close to those pictures. But if we, you know, put them side by side, there'll probably be a little thing here, half a millimeter, you know, that might be different, that sort of thing. And they just need to be able to accept that amount of uncertainty. So 
That's, I think, really important with patient selection. The other thing, which sounds super obvious, is the chief complaint. So I want the patient to be able to tell me or at least point to something on their nose that they don't like. Because if they come in and, you know, sometimes this will happen with kind of young adult or teenage men. And they come in and they don't want to say much. And I say, so what brings you in? And they turn and they look at mom or dad. And then mom or dad does all the talking. And that's generally not great because now I feel like I'm kind of operating on one person to satisfy a different person. And that's not the greatest setup. So it's ideal if the patient can at least point to something and say, this is the thing that I don't like. And they can have a mirror or they can have photos or whatever. Another trend that people have have studied and I've anecdotally seen in my practice is the impact of the front-facing camera on phones and selfies. There's actually an emerging body of literature about the effect that selfies are having in terms of driving patients to seek out facial plastic surgery. And one of the things that isn't readily apparent to patients is that that camera is taking a photo. It's not a mirror. And so when they see themselves, if they've got any amount of asymmetry in their face, it will appear to be amplified because it will be that much more different from what they're used to seeing in the mirror. Because your brain sort of compensates with your mirror reflection. You know, that's what looks like you. But you see this a little bit distorted version because, you know, if the nose is going to the right, you know, in the, in the selfie, now it's going to the left. Uh, and so it really is unsettling. And so a lot of people uh, are seeking out surgery for that reason. The other thing is that people don't generally realize that the front-facing camera tends to be a wide-angle lens camera. And so what that means is that anything that's in the center of the frame, like a nose, tends to look bigger than things at the periphery, like ears. So if you imagine the extreme example of someone, you know, delivering your room service at the hotel and you look through the little peephole in the door, you know, that's a very cartoonish sort of exaggeration of facial features where the nose looks real big and everything else sort of falls away to the sides. So it's not that extreme, but that is some of the effect uh, that it can have. So it's important that patients know that after surgery, maybe they should evaluate the results more honestly in the mirror than with selfie photos that will kind of distort things and look, look flipped to what they're normally seeing. When a patient presents to your clinic for evaluation for rhinoplasty, what do you focus on during initial history? Well, I think the most important thing is the motivation for surgery and the goals. Uh, we kind of covered that in, in depth a few minutes ago, but I can't emphasize that enough because there are multiple right answers uh, to these questions. So, for example, uh, if someone comes from an ethnic background that tends to have a dorsal hump, they may say, I don't want it, I hate it, get rid of it. But they may also just want it to be present, but not as prominent. And so you have to clarify that because if you take someone who's, I don't know, Greek and give them maybe a little bit of a con gently concave dorsum, if they didn't specifically ask for that, they may be really unhappy because they don't look like their family. They don't look like they've ever looked before. So many people don't necessarily want to look different. They just want to look like a better version of themselves. So you just have to clarify that because otherwise you'll be aiming for completely the wrong target and you can't win. The other thing that you have to do, though, is treat these people as if they are, in a way, sick. 
not because of the fact that they're coming in for surgery, but I just mean that if you're going to operate on them, they're going to have anesthesia and all the other things that would go along with any other surgery. And so this is a, a real operation that you're doing. And so if someone has a bleeding disorder or uh, a lung problem or a heart problem, uh, you know, you still have to investigate that and make sure that you're doing all the right things to medically optimize them for surgery and minimize the risk of complications uh, afterwards. Sometimes people who want the shape of their nose changed will often have a concurrent breathing problem. It may not be the main motivating factor. And so you still need to do a bit of educating in terms of the mucosal causes of nasal obstruction. Uh, if they've got allergies or acid reflux, you know, if they're overusing uh, nasal decongestant sprays, things like this. So um, if there's ever any component of nasal obstruction to it, you have to focus on both of those things at the consultation visit and not just the aesthetic concerns. And then I always take a very thorough social history beyond the typical, do you smoke, do you drink? I want to know what they do for a living. I want to know what their hobbies, uh, because those things are absolutely relevant. I mean, I had a patient just the other day who came in, was going to have surgery. I said, any hobbies? Oh yeah, I do, uh, you know, Muay Thai fighting and kickboxing. So, well, then we had to have a whole discussion about, you know, how are you going to protect your nose if you're going to do these things? But if I don't know about that and I don't tell them, they may think, oh, it's not a big deal. I've been doing that already. And they may not protect their nose after surgery. And you can't make any assumptions. I mean, my, my favorite patient was, you know, in terms of this question was, was a woman who probably mid sixties, not tall, did not look very athletic. And I said, any hobbies? And you know, I wouldn't have been surprised if she said gardening and knitting. Uh, but she said, oh, I play in an intramural basketball league, and sometimes we get kind of rowdy. So we had a whole conversation about mid-face masks. So I, I assume nothing, um, and it's important to ask these questions because you don't want to have a surprise after surgery. It's also important if you have any thought that you might possibly need to get cartilage from a rib uh, that you ask about a history of surgery in the chest, uh, and then probably the most common uh, surgery would be a, a breast augmentation. And if someone has had a breast augmentation, uh, it's important to look for pre-existing scars because typically those can be used. Uh, sometimes they can even be improved. But if someone has had uh, breast augmentation uh, through the axilla or just doesn't have an inframammary uh, scar, uh, you have to explain where the scar would be. And in my case, I tend to put it a little bit above the inframammary crease so it's not rubbing right on an underwire. And just explain that in advance. And it's also important to ask what type of implant and how old the implants are, because as the implants get older, oftentimes anything over about 10 years, sometimes the capsule can become a lot more fragile. And so you don't want to encounter that during the harvest of root cartilage. And you have to be extra careful with retraction, because even if you don't violate the capsule around the implant or the implant itself, just the retraction on the wound sometimes uh, can be enough pressure to rupture it. So Knock on wood, I've never ruptured an implant, but patients have to know that, especially if they have older ones, uh, that that is a risk. And are there any features or landmarks that you're paying particular attention to when assessing a patient for rhinoplasty? Yeah, the exam is absolutely critical. And when I'm talking with the residents about this, I, I like to use the analogy of that, um, you know, the, the cartoon that you see in the newspaper, the spot the difference and, you know, there's like five things that are different in the, you know, one picture to the other. And that's basically what I'm doing when I'm examining people. I've got kind of a template in my mind, not, not of a specific nose, but the characteristics of a nose. And I kind of mentally overlay that template on what I'm seeing 
And then I just figure out how I would address um, any of the places where it's different. And then that's what I reflect in the manipulated pictures that I show the patient. The most important thing that you can learn before you start doing this operation is figuring out what you want to try to make. Because if you don't know what you're trying to make, then you don't know when to stop operating. Rhinoplasty anatomy is very different from the anatomy in any other operation. Because in most other operations, you want to know where things are. But in rhinoplasty, that's not the real question. You know, you're not looking to, you know, avoid a nerve or blood vessel or something like that. What you need to know in rhinoplasty is how things are and also how you want them to be. So I think that the most important question that you can ask yourself when learning how to do this operation is what is the shape that you're trying to make? Because if you don't have an answer for that question, and I mean a crystal clear answer in your mind, then you won't know when to stop operating. Because if you approach rhinoplasty as a procedure, in other words, sort of a series of steps, and then when you're done with the steps, you're done with the surgery, that's not likely to give patients the sort of individualized result that they often need, because not everyone comes to you uh, with the same starting point. So the only way that you know when you're done operating is when you've made the shape that you want to make. And that's two parts. It's what does it need to look like under the soft tissue so that it looks correct from the outside when healing has progressed? And so we covered this a bit in the last one, but because I think it's so important, I can review it. So if you're not driving, I would say maybe close your eyes. I'm going to try to paint a visual picture for you, just with words. And I want you to try to follow along, and hopefully this is descriptive. On the front view, first I'll just look for general symmetry. Is the nose straight? And then I'll assess the skin thickness. And then I'll look at the brow tip aesthetic line. And this is sort of a gently hourglass-shaped curve that starts at the medial brow, comes to the region of the radix, down along the lateral dorsum, and gently gets wide again at the tip. If someone's middle third is overly narrow, that brow tip aesthetic line, which is the junction between the top of the dorsum and the nasal sidewall, that line will be broken. And if the patient turns their head even the littlest bit off from a full frontal view, it'll look like they have a dorsal hump. That's what they'll call it. They might really have pinching, but they'll say I still have a bump. And to us, we look at the profile, and we don't see a bump, but they kind of have that little oblique head turn, and they say, no, it's right here, there's a bump. They say, no, it's actually a dent. So you have to make sure that you're, that's a very important landmark to see uh, because it's, it's exquisitely sensitive to people looking at their nose in the mirror. They'll notice that. Moving down to the tip, on the front view, the tip should be generally symmetric. And if someone's, say, facing a window or has somewhat uniform lighting like that, you'll see a tip highlight. And that tip highlight will gently fade out as it heads out into the alar lobule. I try to make noses that don't have a shadow on either side of the tip. That tends to make the tip look like a ball, and most patients don't want that. The way that you get the shadow is if the caudal edge of the lateral cruce is too close to the septum. So reorienting that short axis 
of the lateral crease and bringing it up so that the short axis of the lateral crease is almost perpendicular to the septum will open up that external nasal valve, but also create that contour of an uninterrupted arch that you might see on the base view. Just behind that tip highlight, just cephalic to it, I want to see just a hint of a shadow, and that's just the super tip break. And then from the tip defining point out to the lateral nasal wall, I want that to be generally flat, maybe a hint of concavity. In some patients, they can tolerate a little bit of roundness and convexity, so that's fine too. But uh, if someone just says, do what you think looks good, I might show them that on the, the manipulated picture. On the base view, I want the calumella to be in the midline. Uh, I look for the length of the mediopura. Are they short? Does that short mediopura makes the calumella look wide, and that indicates poor nasal base support, and it can also cause some nasal obstruction. And on the contour in the base view, I want to see that uninterrupted arch. It should look like a little bit of a trapezoid because I don't want people to have a nose that looks like it's got a tent pole in it. So we kind of call it triangular, but it's really a triangle with the top chopped off a little bit. But regardless, I want it to look like an uninterrupted arch. If there's any pinching lateral to the nasal tip, that will be that shadow that you'll see in the front view. And patients will say, well, I still have a ball at the end of my nose. And if you see someone who has that ball on the end of their nose and they don't like that, and you're thinking, I know what to do, I'm going to narrow the tip, I'll put some sutures in there and narrow it. If you don't actually correct that orientation of the lateral cruise, all you're going to make is a smaller ball, and they may not be happy with that. On the profile view, the radix height, and we kind of talked about this before, we call it the radix, it's really more the cellian, some people call it the nasian, but I'll just call it the radix, which is what most people tend to call it. But the starting point of the nose, the point of maximal concavity on the profile at the top of the nose, usually is somewhere between the supratarsal crease and the lashes. Sometimes it'll be down near the pupil, but as it gets lower, that will start to make the nose look a little bit more overprojected than it actually is. So as a guideline, and these are just guidelines, something around the lashes, maybe a little bit higher, is ideal. Also, a radix that is this sounds a little funny, it's like Goldilocks, not too deep, not too shallow, is ideal. When people have a very shallow radix, they'll often have a dorsal hump, and you have to be careful if you take the dorsal hump down. It will look like their nose starts in their forehead, uh, and so you may have to do something to that radix, uh, but sometimes that can be pretty challenging to, to take that down because the soft tissue is so much thicker in that area of the nose. Back to the profile, along that dorsal contour, I like to see something that's straight or maybe just the littlest, slightest hint of concavity, unless someone says, I want a little bit of a bump. Uh, so that's also another right answer. And then sort of a gentle super tip break. I don't want something that looks like you're going off a ski slope. And then in terms of the projection, I tend to look at the proportions between the alar facial junction, the nasolabial angle, the front of the uh, alar opening, and the tip defining point. And in general, those segments all ought to be approximately equal. And if they're not, then I may need to do something uh, to adjust that. And then moving down under the tip, we get into the infratip lobule, what people will often refer to as the double break. I want that to be sort of a gentle curve that then turns into the nasolabial angle, which is another gentle curve that does not look like it's either pulling the lip out and holding it under tension, 
nor is the nose sort of sinking into the face and it's making a sharp corner. And that junction between the nose and the lip, that transition, I think is very important to having a good looking nose. I talked a little bit about the oblique views and maintaining, uh, or at least looking for an uninterrupted bronotype aesthetic line on the oblique views. The oblique views are the most sensitive to see any sort of irregularity uh, in that line or contour. Now, most of the things that I just told you are not the things that people tend to get tested on. The test questions tend to come from things like certain angles, certain proportions, and those things can be helpful and they're worth learning and it's a good foundation. But I can tell you, I really don't know of any experienced rhinoplasty surgeons who use rulers and protractors on their pictures to you know, assess the nose. And probably the reason that people tend not to do that is just because those systems, though helpful, can't account for all the important landmarks that are part of the profile. So in other words, some of them may account for you know, the relationship between the radix, the tip, uh, the facial junction, and the nasolabial angle. Uh, but they're they're neglecting the chin, or they're neglecting the slope of the forehead. And those are all things that play into how the profile actually looks. So it's important to kind of know those angles and proportions. And I think you can look in any review book ever uh, and find all those things. But in terms of their practical applicability, in fact, I've given a talk on this a, a few times, and I show photos of people who have very attractive noses where these guidelines don't work and people who I think maybe have less attractive noses and they completely fit the guidelines. And the opposite can also work, but the point is that just adhering to the guidelines does not guarantee a good looking uh, nasal profile. So they're really just kind of a guide and it's a way to kind of dip your toe into the pool of, of understanding these things, uh, but it's really just a starting point. So. You can look at those things. Uh, they're probably better learned seeing it written down or on drawings or whatever than, than hearing it come out of my mouth. But just keep those in mind for test-taking purposes and to develop your own aesthetic. But with practice, you'll be able to look at someone's nose and just say, yeah, that looks a little over-projected and a little over-rotated. And you'll figure out how that nose differs from the one that you would want to make for someone. Is there any other imaging or workup you'd want to obtain prior to heading to the operating room? I think the most important imaging that you can get before going to the operating room for someone who has an aesthetic concern with their nose is preoperative photos. We build it into our process that, that people get the pictures before they have the consultation, uh, and that does a couple of good things. Uh, one is it makes them available for me to adjust them during the consultation, uh, but the other thing is it ensures that we got them. Because if you get the pictures after you've met with the patient, sometimes they'll be in a rush uh, and they say, oh, it doesn't seem that important to me and they won't get them. Uh, and then you have to remember at the pre-op visit maybe to do it or, you know, it just, it becomes too much stress <laughs> to remember to get the pictures. So uh, if they have had the consultation, then I know they've got the pictures um, because the only time you can ever get a preoperative photo is before surgery. And they should be standardized photos. It shouldn't be a snapshot use the same equipment, same distance from the patient, same lighting, same background, same everything. And I typically get at least six different views, a front view, uh, two lateral views, two oblique views, a base view. Uh, and I'll often get a base view where they're inspiring. That'll give me a little bit of an idea of if they've got any lateral wall uh, weakness. 
uh, and the positioning is also really critical in that you want to make sure that the Frankfurt horizontal line, uh, which goes from the top, the superior part of the external auditory canal, across to the inferior border of the infraorbital rim, that that's parallel to the floor and that you should have that on the front view as well as any of the lateral or oblique views. And in terms of treatment, starting off broadly, what are the main types of rhinoplasty in terms of surgical approach, and how do you decide which one to use? Well, there's two main approaches. There's an endonasal approach, uh, and there's an external approach. Within the endonasal approach, there are two main ways that you can get there. You can use a non-delivery approach where you're not pulling the cartilages of the tip out of the nostril uh, to see them, or there's a delivery approach where you are making basically a bipedical flap so that you can draw the dome and parts of the medial and lateral cura out uh, so that you can see them and manipulate them. The external approach uses some of those same incisions, typically a marginal incision, and is connected to a transverse uh, I use uh, the inverted V mid columellar incision, but there are other designs as well. And then by using that, you can lift up all of the soft tissue off the bone and the cartilage of the nose and just have direct visualization uh, for it. So it's important not to confuse the approaches with the incisions because some of the incisions are used in both. So just to summarize, the two main approaches are endonasal or external. Within endonasal, there's delivery and non-delivery. And then now let's talk about the incisions. So typical incisions that are used for endonasal rhinoplasty would be either a transcartilaginous incision or an intercartilaginous incision. And that just depends on what you need to do. So in some cases, if you know that you're going to use a little cephalic trim to help release that compound curve at the scroll and maybe remove a little volume in the super tip, uh, then you might want to use the intracartilaginous incision. And your incision is essentially your cephalic trim. And you just do it from underneath. That can take a little bit of practice. I would recommend uh, when doing that, especially at the beginning, that you draw on the outside of the nose the lower lateral cartilages, and then draw your planned cephalic trim. And then using a needle, you can transfer that line to the inside of the nose so that you don't get disoriented because of looking at things from, you know, sort of upside down and backwards. So that can be helpful. If you just need to get to the dorsum, uh, you don't necessarily have to cut the cartilages. You can use an intercartilaginous incision, which is uh, one that goes between the cephalic edge of the lateral cruce and the caudal edge of the upper lateral cartilage. That incision then can give you access to the dorsum. So if you're just taking down a little bit of a bump with a rasp, for example, uh, you can just make that incision and then put a couple stitches in it and then you're done. A marginal incision is one that goes along the caudal edge of the lateral cruise and then can be extended down along the cayamella such that it's just kind of behind that little roll that most people have. And that's uh, pretty well hidden. If you're going to deliver the cartilages of the tip, you tend to make a bipedical flap where you'll make that marginal incision kind of down into the columella, and then you'll also make either an inter or intracartilaginous incision that turns into usually something like a hemi or a full transfixion incision. And then your 
bipedicled flap is attached at the foot of the medial cruce and laterally on the lateral cruce near the sesamoid cartilages. But you can mobilize the lower lateral cartilage and pull it out of the nostril and trim it, uh, sculpt it, divide it, resuture it, put sutures in the domes, uh, whatever you're going to do to manipulate it. But what can make that tricky is that you're never really seeing those cartilages in their natural position. So you distort it by taking it out. You have to do a thing and then put it back, but you never really get to see it. Now, with practice, you can get good at this. So it's, I don't tell you that as a way to discourage you from using the endonasal approach, uh, but just know that it has that little extra layer of um, difficulty, I think, in that you're not getting to see things in their undisturbed state. The external approach combines that mid-calumellar incision with a marginal incision, and then you can lift up the soft tissue and then see everything uh, as it is in the nose. And so it really just depends on what the goals of the surgery are. So for me, I feel much better about fixing something in the middle vault if I have access from above. I know that there are many excellent endonasal rhinoplasty surgeons who will take down a large dorsal hump and reconstruct the middle vault to prevent an open roof or inverted V deformity. But for me, I would prefer to do that through an external approach. I also like that I get to see the lower lateral cartilages at the end of the surgery because that's how I know that I've made the shape that I want to make uh, before I put the skin back. So I tend to do most of my operating through an external approach, but you can apply many of the same principles that we've developed in sort of the area of structure-based rhinoplasty, you can do many of those things uh, endonasally also. So the approach is not the operation. The operation is the things you're going to do to meet the patient's needs. The approach is just how you get there. So don't confuse the two. While there's clearly far more than one episode's worth of discussion material on rhinoplasty techniques, could you give us a kind of 10,000-foot view on surgical goals you might have in a rhinoplasty and some techniques you might use to achieve those goals? If you look at most historical texts, they will talk about doing the tip work first and then seeing where the tip is and then taking down the dorsum such that it's kind of you know, behind that on the profile so that you don't have a polybeak deformity uh, or a residual dorsal hump. I think that, that that is nowadays being more superseded by doing that in the opposite order. So in other words, I think historically, there was not a lot of emphasis placed on supporting the base of the nose. And if it was supported, it was often with a floating calumellar strut. Uh, which can be very helpful, but has some limitations in terms of its structural soundness and predictability. And so the reason to do the tip work first was that you didn't, you know, you needed to see where the tip was going to end up, and then you put everything else around that. But with some of the newer techniques that we have, like using the dug and groove technique, or a caudal septal extension graft, or an extended calumella strut, and those those types of uh, methods of base support, then you can often have a little bit more control over where you're putting the tip. And so that way you can put the dorsum where you want it and then do the tip work at the end and project your tip out in front of it. And we talked earlier at the beginning of the episode about the consequences of taking down the dorsum and that it tends to look a little bit wider on the front view. So if you have to take your dorsum down 
what might be a little bit too far to be behind your tip to prevent a polybeak or a dorsal hump, you may be compromising the front view a little bit because they may look a little bit washed out between their eyes because they lack that definition in having kind of a higher dorsum. So if you want to preserve a higher dorsum, then you have to be able to control your tip position and keep it out uh, anterior uh, to your dorsum so that you have that little super tip break and not a polybeak. So in my thinking, I tend to think of the nose as having sort of two foundations. One is, you know, the nasal bones and then working my way down. And then the other is the base of the nose and the caudal septum and then working my way up. So during the course of the operation, uh, I kind of work from those two foundations and then I end with the tip. Uh, and then that way, if I need just a little bit more projection, I can, you know, lay a little piece of perichondrium or little cephalic trim on top of the tip or something like that and just get that last little bit of fine tuning. In general, if you try to preserve as much of the structural integrity of the nose as you possibly can. Now, sometimes you have to do something like divide the lateral cruise uh, and overlap it. Uh, and it's often just because there's too much of it. So if someone has a very boxy or bulbous tip or they're very overprojected, uh, you can't just push that cartilage into a new location because it'll bend, it'll be curving uh, because it, it kind of won't fit in the volume, the new volume that you've made. So you may need to divide and overlap the lateral cura or divide and overlap the medial cura or both in order to get things to, to fit the new, the new volume. So the take-home message from that, though, is that if you do need to divide the lateral or medial cura, just make sure that you're, you're suturing it back together, maybe in an overlapped way or, or reinforcing it somehow. You don't want to just cut it and, and leave it alone. It's also really important not to get real aggressive with resection of the lateral cruise. Uh, another thing that you'll see quoted a lot in, in textbook chapters and things like that is to leave a minimum of uh, six millimeters of a lateral cruise or what's called an intact strip. And so I certainly agree with that, but I would also say try to leave even more than that because if you can reshape the lateral cruise with sutures or with a lateral curl strut graft or defining it and overlapping it or some other technique, you won't need to rely on an aggressive resection in order to get the cartilages to be the shape that you want them to be. The problem that you can have with an aggressive cephalic trim and leaving only perhaps six millimeters is that you're creating a large structural void between the upper and lower lateral cartilages. And initially that may not be a problem. But as the patient heals, the scar is going to contract and there won't be the structure to help push the alar margins down. And those patients will often uh, end up with some uh, nasal obstruction that maybe they didn't start with. And they'll often have alar retraction and they won't like how that looks. So try to be a bit of a minimalist. Not that you don't do anything, but you don't want to completely disrupt the structural integrity. Uh, of the nasal tip in order to do what you want to do. So try to preserve as much of that uh, as you can, including the tip support. So I already mentioned the support of the nasal base and some of the techniques for that, but that's also uh, extremely important. Without losing sight of the question that we want to answer, which is what is the shape that we're trying to make, there are some tools that you have at your disposal that will have consequences. And Sometimes they'll have sort of primary and secondary consequences, so you have to be aware of that. But these are a brief overview of some of the tools that you have at your disposal. If you need to increase 
projection at the tip. Uh, one thing that you can do, probably the more common thing that I would do, is support the nasal base with maybe a caudal septal extension graft and then sew the medial cura to my caudal septal extension graft. Now, sometimes people get confused about the difference between that and the tongue and groove technique. Now, that is a tongue and groove type of relationship between the medial cura and the caudal septal extension graft, but usually the tongue and groove technique is referring to uh, setting the medial cura back on the actual caudal septum itself, not a graft. Uh, so that can also be helpful, especially if someone has a hanging columella, uh, or if you're deprojecting the nose, uh, that'll often work pretty well. Um, but in general, supporting the medial cura on something fairly stable, whether it's tongue and groove technique, uh, an extended columellar strut, uh, perhaps a floating columellar strut, caudal septal extension graft, or a caudal septal replacement graft if you needed to uh, reconstruct it because it was crooked. So repositioning the lower lateral cartilages, I think, is a very powerful and natural-looking way to increase tip projection. Uh, another common thing to do is tip grafting. And so you can lay a graft right on the domes. The eponym for that is a peck graft. Uh, if I do that, it's most commonly a little strip of the, the cephalic trim because that's nice soft cartilage and tends not to show up as the swelling goes down. And historically, people, uh, I think, used a shield graft more than uh, it's done now, but it still can be a fairly helpful uh, technique. And that's sort of a, a almost wedge-shaped graft with no sharp corners uh, that goes down uh, along the uh, infratip lobule uh, laid on the medial cura uh, and usually extends a little bit above the domes to uh, not only change the contour of the infratip lobule, but also to add a little projection at the tip. You can also increase tip projection commonly by placing a dome suture, and that's a stitch that uh, goes through the dome. So half the stitch is really in the intermediate cruise and half is in the lateral cruise. And by tightening that just a little bit, you don't want to make it too pointy, but by tightening that a bit, then you can change the shape of the dome uh, and get a little bit of extra projection. Now, I mentioned earlier about the importance of the caudal edge of the lateral cruise and its relationship to the septum. If you place a dome suture in such a way that it's uh, almost parallel to the septum, you'll bring that caudal edge of the lateral cruise into the nose and create that pinching and create that ball-tipped look. If, on the other hand, you place that dome suture almost perpendicular to the plane of the septum, then you can have a much more favorable relationship of the caudal edge of the lateral cruise and have a better supported external nasal valve. I've got some papers that have some good drawings that um, maybe we can uh, link to or something like that uh, to make that part a little bit more clear uh, because that's not a commonly um, discussed concept. Another technique is what's called the lateral cruel steel. Uh, and this is where uh, the lateral cruise is mobilized a bit, and you actually place a dome suture lateral to where the natural dome was, uh, and you borrow some of the lateral cruise and turn it into intermediate cruise, uh, and that can help uh, increase tip projection also. To decrease tip projection, uh, you can do things like a full transfixion incision, or for, through the external approach, you can just completely separate the medial cura from the caudal septum. And you'll do that, and you'll just put the skin back down, and you look at the profile view, and you'll just see that you've probably lost two, three millimeters of, of projection right there. 
You can also shorten the medial and or lateral cura to set the tip back. So you can uh, cut them and overlap them and then sew them back in place. You can do a dome division. And if I'm going to do that, I tend to do that a little bit lateral to the dome, not right through the dome, just because I don't want any corners right at my tip defining points. You can trim the caudal septum really as it's closer to the, to the anterior septal angle uh, to take that down. I'm not a big fan of um, aggressively cutting out parts of the caudal septum uh, because if it is somewhat dependent, I'll often use that uh, for my nasal base support so it can be useful. And then the same uh, methods that we talked about with tongue and groove techniques or caudal extension or caudal replacement grafts or an extended collimator strut or something like that, you can also use to deproject the nose just by placing the mediocura closer to the plane of the face. And that can be fairly powerful also. You know, we talked about increasing the projection a moment ago, um, but one of the things, and, and I mentioned something about um, maybe secondary or unanticipated consequences, something that's reasonably common, but maybe not obvious, is that if you're trying to fix very convex lateral cura with a uh, lateral curl strut graft, when you take that curved contour and make it flat, it will get longer. And that getting longer will tend to have the consequence of increasing projection and maybe decreasing rotation. So it's not uncommon if someone has a very, very convex lateral cruise and I place a lateral curl strut graft that I'll have to divide and overlap the lateral cruise to compensate, to rotate the tip back to where I want it and to deproject the nose uh, a little bit as well, because I only want to affect the shape. I don't necessarily want to change the position. So it's important to understand some of those, those consequences. Uh, another one uh, that may not be obvious is that if you're deprojecting someone, if you're doing it a significant amount, you may have to uh, address some calumella retraction because as you set the tip back, that alar margin, uh, which is normally just a gentle arch, uh, that has to go somewhere. Uh, and when you're pushing the anterior part closer to the posterior part, uh, the, the arch tends to get a little bit higher. So if the patient needs that, um, or, you know, that's part of the plan, that's totally fine. Uh, but you may need to place a rim graft or reposition the uh, lateral cura, for example. And so you just have to factor that into your plan. Ways that you can increase tip rotation. You can maybe get a little bit of increased tip rotation with a cephalic trim, uh, but I wouldn't count on that to do a whole lot. Again, the workhorse for me is something like the tongue and groove technique uh, or a caudal septal extension graft, a replacement graft or extended collimator strut. You can also use sutures uh, to reposition the cephalic margins of the lateral cura kind of up onto the upper lateral cartilages. And then, as I mentioned already, you can divide and overlap uh, the lateral cruce. Um, and that's helpful when people have a really uh, long lateral cruce, either naturally or uh, because you've uh, placed a lateral curl strut graft. To decrease tip rotation, you can excise a little bit of the caudal septum. Uh, but again, I'll go back to what I said before, which is the, the mainstay for me is going to be fixing the medial cura to something like the caudal septal extension graft or using a tongue and groove technique. Um, although that's usually the tongue and groove by itself on the septum is a little less uh, helpful for decreasing rotation. That's usually better for increasing rotation. And then if you need to narrow the nasal tip, this is often, in my opinion, misunderstood because a lot of the techniques that we use to do this will end up 
reorienting the short axis of the lateral cruise and can cause some of these problems uh, that I was referring to where, where you get those parentheses type shadows in the front view and you end up with a very bulbous looking tip. It may be a small ball, but it's a ball nonetheless. So if I need to narrow the tip, uh, what I'll do is I'll sort of make my cephalic trim come down into uh, the area between uh, the domes and then just place a single suture in the super tip area uh, to bring my domes together. And that's that's usually plenty. And, and typically a broad nasal tip is not even due to excess width in the area of the domes. It's due to a lot of convexity in the lateral cura, or it can be due to the lateral cura being oriented improperly. So we haven't really discussed this, but this is a fairly common and important problem. But cephalic malpositioning of the lateral cura uh, are another uh, thing that you have to be on the lookout for. And so the way to fix cephalic malpositioning of the lateral cura is to typically free them up off the vestibular skin, place some uh, lateral cural struts, and then make more caudally oriented pockets in the lateral nasal wall. This is a very advanced technique. So earlier in your career, you should be very careful with the patients who you're selecting to operate on. Because if you have, you know, an attractive young patient with cephalic malpositioning and they've got thin skin, that might be a bit of a handful. So that wouldn't be someone who I would recommend operating on uh, right away. Wait until you've got some experience and feel comfortable doing something like that, because that's quite a bit of disassembly uh, of the nose. And everything that you free up, you are not obligated to put back in the right place. Uh, the more the more things you have in motion, uh, the, the more variables there are and the harder it gets. One of the things that I really don't ever do is the horizontal sort of double dome suture. And the reason that I don't do that is precisely because that will make the domes, the angle of the domes become essentially almost vertical, which brings the caudal edge of the lateral cruise in toward the septum and creates that kind of ball on the end of the nose look. So um, I think there are other ways to narrow the tip and you can uh, maintain a more anatomically favorable relationship of the um, lateral cruise uh, to the septum. So I mean, we could really talk for days about how to do tip surgery. So this is really a very broad overview, but hopefully it's giving you a little bit of context for how to do some of these things. You know, I think many times when you go to a meeting, many of the talks are emphasizing techniques and it's easy to think, oh, I'll learn techniques and then I'll know how to do rhinoplasty. But you really have to have the context of knowing what you're trying to do. That's the most important part, I think. You know, if we were talking about carpentry, I could describe to you drills and saws and hammers and things, but you might look at me and say, yeah, but what are we making? You know, we're making a chair, making a dresser, you know, that, that determines how I'm going to use these tools. So don't confuse the tools with the operation. Uh, all the things that I was just discussing the last few minutes are all just tools to get you closer uh, to your goal, but you have to know what that goal actually is. Another common uh, problem is either a crooked nose or a dorsal hump. And so both of these problems tend to have consequences along the nasal dorsum. It's important to recognize whether the source of the deformity is the bones or the cartilage or both. And if you're going to correct a crooked nose, you'll, you'll tend to need to make uh, some osteotomies. And there are lots of different ways uh, that you can do that. And I think this in keeping with the other things we've been talking about, really need to be kind of adapted to the patient. So if someone has a fairly 
straight nose and I just need to narrow the bones, I'll tend to make some fading medial osteotomies and what's called a high-low, high lateral osteotomy. And that can be confusing because what in the world is this high-low, high business? Well, that's as the patient is on the table and the high and the low is relative to the floor. So we don't normally name patient-oriented things uh, relative to the floor. Uh, you know, it's usually cephalic, caudal, anterior, posterior, but that's what high, low, high is. It just means that it's a gentle U-shaped lateral osteotomy, and at the piriform aperture, it starts kind of a little bit high, and then down along the ascending process, the maxilla uh, becomes a little bit lower, and then as it heads up toward uh, the nasal bones, uh, becomes high again. It's important to recognize that a lateral osteotomy is really in the maxilla. Uh, it's not the nasal bones. But the medial osteotomy, that is more than nasal bones. I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but as a general concept, I often see uh, residents will make a diagram at the end of the surgery and they'll draw the lateral osteotomy in the nasal bones, but that's much, much too high. So don't only assess the nasal bones for their width or their position, whether they're crooked or straight, uh, but also their shape. So some people will have very convex nasal bones, uh, whether it's due to a trauma or just that's how they grew. And so in those cases, you may benefit from doing what's called an intermediate osteotomy. And that's one that can help kind of flatten uh, that overly convex bony contour. And as it sounds, goes between the medial and the lateral osteotomy. When you do these things, it's a good idea to do them in the order medial to lateral. So if you're going to do an intermediate, you do medial, intermediate, lateral. If you're not doing an intermediate, just do medial, lateral. And the reason for that is that you always want to have the most stable thing, which is the maxilla, pushing against your osteotome as you're doing the, the one before it. If you do the lateral one first, you may have a pretty unstable nasal sidewall when you're trying to make the rest of your osteotomy, and uh, you may just end up crushing the bone instead of cutting it. And I'd like to make a little side comment about having sharp instruments. In my opinion, and based on the research of Dr. Dan Becker, a professionally sharpened osteotome is only as sharp as one that was brand new from the factory that's already been used six times. So, you know, if you've got a whetstone in the operating room or something, I suppose that's better than nothing, but I don't think that you would expect to reuse and resharpen your 15 blades on a whetstone, and those are only cutting skin. So with the osteotomes, you're cutting bone. I think they need to be even that much more important that they're sharp. When they're not sharp, they can find their own path, which may not be where you want it to go, or they'll just fracture the bone instead of cutting it. You know, it's not uncommon to have something like a microdebrider in sinus surgery or a piezo tip, and it might cost several hundred dollars, and it's a single-use item, and no one bats an eye. The osteotomes that I use are about $70, uh, and I use them six times, and then they go to the anatomy lab. That was a little bit of a new idea uh, at first, but everyone seems to be on board with that now, and it's really improved the predictability of the cuts that I can make in the bones. And I think many of the concerns that people have with osteotomes are just due to them probably being dull. So make sure that you have sharp ones. If someone has a large dorsal hump, you may not need medial osteotomies because as you take that hump down, uh, you'll end up with what's called an open roof deformity. And that open roof is the gap between the nasal bone and the bony septum. So typically the way to deal with that was to infracture the bones to uh, obliterate that, that open roof. But you can also make spreader grafts that will go up and fill in that gap. So they go up into the bones. When taking down a dorsal hump, you can use an osteotome. That's my preferred method because I 
measure on my preoperative manipulated images the size of the hump that I'm going to take down. And then I can see that what I've removed with the osteotome is that, that same size. So uh, I feel like that helps me improve my predictability with operating on the patient's profile. If I was just using a rasp, I would never really know how much I've removed. And sometimes rasping down a big hump can cause a fair amount of trauma to the soft tissue envelope just from the beating that it takes uh, you know, under the skin. They get a pretty good bruise on the skin. So I tend to rasp only to smooth out contours, not as much to take down the whole hump. If the hump is just a millimeter, I may not even get a decent grip with the osteotome, then I'll just rasp it. Uh, But if it's a three, four millimeter hump, I'll take that down with a sharp instrument first. It's a little bit beyond the scope of this talk, but uh, I would also encourage the listeners to uh, investigate what's a bit of an older idea that's making a bit of a comeback now. It's been renamed uh, preservation rhinoplasty, and that is not taking down a dorsal hump at the dorsum, uh, but taking it down more on the nasal sidewall and removing some uh, bone and some part of the septum and letting it all sort of drop down. That's, I would say, even a bit more of an advanced technique uh, than the traditional um, sharp excision or rasping of a dorsal hump. But just know that that exists and maybe maybe look into that. There's some real good talks out there recently um, from, from different meetings. When correcting a crooked nose, osteotomies can be helpful. I usually make a small two millimeter percutaneous osteotomy in that central segment that's between my medial osteotomies. And by doing that, I can more mobilize that central piece. If I'm only making medial and lateral osteotomies and the nose is crooked, I can't get the nose straight because that central piece is kind of holding up my progress. So that little percutaneous osteotomy right through the dorsum with a two millimeter osteotome, and then I kind of move the skin around with the osteotome in place, I can actually make a longer cut in the bone than the two millimeters uh, by moving it around. And I can mobilize that central piece uh, to get the nose straighter. The asymmetric tip, many techniques to deal with this. Basically, it's just doing what's necessary to make the shape uh, that you need. So a lot of the techniques that we talked about earlier for projection, deprojection, rotation, counter-rotation, those kinds of things, you're going to do them, but maybe just do them differently on the left and the right, or only on the left and the right. And so just really do the thing that you need to do uh, in order to to solve those problems. And then if you're deprojecting someone, you may need to narrow the base of the nose. I used to do this a little bit more at the time of the primary surgery, but as I've gotten older, uh, I tend not to because a lot of times what looks a little overdone, or I should say maybe underdone, overly wide uh, at the end of the operation, tends to be okay uh, as time goes on, and, and patients don't care too much about it. So I don't do that as often as I used to. And I tell people, you know, we may need to do this, but it's really a pretty trivial thing to do under local anesthesia, you know, in the office. So the benefit to that is that that I'm not making that important decision when things are still sort of fresh and a little bit distorted. Uh, we can let things settle down and maybe it's six months, nine months, a year, whatever. If they really still need it, uh, then we can we can address that. Uh, but there's different methods. You can remove some of the nasal sill or you can remove some of the nasal ala or both. Um, and those different techniques. So a sill excision uh, will help with width and a what's called a weir uh, excision will help with alar flare. 
And as I said, those things can also be combined. This is another topic that's probably best learned with pictures. So I would encourage the listeners to see how those things are done. Something else that that I published is a Y to V advancement. Uh, And one of the advantages that that has is that you don't actually remove any tissue. And you also don't have a scar that crosses the alar margin perpendicular. Uh, so you, I think it minimizes the risk of having what's called a Q deformity. And I've never had to do it, but if you did need to, you could actually reverse it because then you just do a V to Y and put it back. So that's kind of a nice uh, option to have. It's been described that you can make a cinching stitch that kind of passes under the nose to, to narrow it. But in my experience, that tends to just cut through the soft tissue and it just doesn't hold long term. Uh, So I tend not to do that. Some people need augmentation of the dorsum. And there are multiple ways that you can do that. You can use solid grafts. You can use diced cartilage. uh, You can use soft tissue. It all depends on, again, what the needs of the patient are uh, and how much augmentation you need. Although it's perfectly reasonable uh, to try to make a solid graft out of either septum or ear, I've kind of given up on that because the contour of the cartilage that you can harvest and also its consistency is not always conducive to having a graft that is the right length and that has smooth edges and is is just basically the right shape. So if I have to use septum uh, or ear um, to augment the dorsum, my preferred way would be to use some diced cartilage uh, with some soft tissue fascia over that uh, to camouflage it. If I'm going to use a solid graft, then I would make it out of a rib cartilage because then I can make it smooth, I can make it the right length uh, and the right shape, and I don't have to worry as much about seeing an edge. And then some people will have a saddle nose, and again, that's like a whole other basically talk that uh, we kind of discussed more during the rhinoplasty for breathing. So I would refer the listeners uh, to listen to that one as it's beyond the scope, I think, of what we're talking about today. And what is the standard postoperative care after rhinoplasty? Uh, I th- I'll tell you, I can tell you what I do. Uh, there are, again, multiple right answers uh, for this as well. I tend not to use intranasal packing. I used to use a small bit of telfa and kind of rolled up and one put on either side that I removed. I typically took it out on uh, day one or two. I don't really do that anymore. I prefer using silastic splints that have a little air channel molded into them and I'd like to leave that in for a week for a couple of reasons, but the main two reasons, it I think it really helps to support more of the septum in terms of re-opposing the uh, mucosal flaps. Uh, but the other thing is that the, the anterior part of that little splint presses against my lateral nasal wall and kind of holds my lateral cruce out in a pretty favorable position, you know, during that, that week after surgery. The other thing that I tend to add is a little sort of sandwich bolster on the lateral nasal wall on each side. So there's a piece inside the nose and a piece outside the nose. And I make that out of a fluoroplastic. It's not silastic. It's actually a pretty rigid little piece of plastic. I just kind of custom cut it. And then I put a 3-0 nylon all the way through it. And I think that really can help cut down on the amount of edema that people have in the lateral nasal wall uh, during that first week. And so one benefit to that is that when we take the cast off, they they see something that's a lot closer to what they're ultimately going to see. Uh, the other benefit is that if I've done anything in the lateral nasal wall, made a batten graft or repositioned lateral cura, that little bolster really helps to support that uh, also. You have to be careful, though, that you take a pretty big bite with the suture so that it's not 
compressing that lateral nasal wall too much. I've never had that little bolster, and it's been thousands now, I've never had it result in any necrosis of the skin, but I think it's because I take such a big bite that as I tighten it down, I'm compressing more along the length of my splint than I am uh, you know, compressing uh, the skin. And so an easy test is when you're done with the stitch, if you take the little suture scissors, you should be able to kind of spread them vertically uh, you know, under that suture to make sure that there's enough slack in it. And then over that, I'll put a little strip of telpha along the dorsum and then some steri strips over that and then use a thermoplastic cast um, and that all stays on for a week. So I see the patients on post-up day one and at that visit, we teach them about the wound care and I can check to make sure that they don't have a, a septal hematoma. If they do have a septal hematoma, it's not a big deal to drain that right in clinic. And that's the other nice thing about those um, silastic splints is that I can put the needle to aspirate the hematoma right through the splint. And they're kind of numb from the surgery anyhow, uh, so they feel a little bit of pressure, but I don't even have to anesthetize them. So it's a really trivial thing. If you need, if you gotta get, you know, one or two cc's of blood out of the septum, you can just pass it right through the splint. Don't take the splints out. No one wants those to be put back in, you know, on day one when they're awake. So you don't need to do it. The splints will help you. Just put the needle right through the splint, aspirate, and they instantly feel better. Um, and I don't think I've ever had one that has recurred more than once. But the most important thing for the post-update one visit, I think, is that we can get all our questions answered because they always have new ones. I feel better that they know what they're doing with the wound care, and we've had an opportunity to demonstrate it to them. I think the most common mistake that people make with the post-operative wound care is that they just don't finish cleaning the nose enough. So we give them some uh, peroxide and some little cotton-tipped applicators, and we show them exactly how to do it. And I tell them, you know, don't quit till you're done, and you know that you're done when the, when the little cotton tip is coming out and it's still clean. If it's at all looked like it's got blood on it or something, just keep going. And I tell them it's a lot of work the first couple of days, but then toward the end of the week, it gets a lot easier. But I think their wound care is really the top, top thing that will help prevent an infection. We give them some uh, antibiotic ointment to use along with the, uh, the peroxide for the cleaning. Uh, and they also get oral antibiotics to help minimize the, uh, the risk of infection. Um, I tell them to kind of limit their activity and just take it easy and keep their head elevated. I don't want them to be immobilized, you know, just kind of laid up in bed all week. But, you know, to be vertical, but but not active. You know, I tell us this is not the week to go to work. This is not the week to clean out the basement. If you've got sort of a type A person, you have to kind of warn them about that. And then I don't give them any ice packs or anything like that because I find that people really aren't that swollen anyway. And if I've made osteotomies or, or you know, anything like that, I don't, I don't want them resting anything on their nose. And I also don't want any condensation from the ice packs to cause the cast to get wet, maybe to fall up prematurely. So... I don't use that. I, I haven't found that it's been an issue not using that, but I know that there are people who do. So again, multiple right answers. All right. And I know we've covered this previously, but since it's often a somewhat controversial topic and can be confusing as a resident, in terms of antibiotic prophylaxis with nasal packing, how much of this is driven by guidelines versus provider preference? Um, in terms of antibiotics after rhinoplasty, um, you know, there are some guidelines. I think that the strongest evidence for not using antibiotic prophylaxis is in a septoplasty um, and a septoplasty without packing of, say, gauze or telpha or um, even absorbable packing. I think if you have things 
where the nose is really packed, then you have to maybe worry about toxic shock syndrome. And antibiotic prophylaxis is uh, very much indicated. With the silicone splints, I don't think there's really any risk of that. So I, you know, I give them antibiotics anyway, but not specifically for toxic shock syndrome, but mostly just because, you know, we were just operating in a, in a contaminated field. And, and for whatever reason, it seems like with septoplasties, it's maybe a little bit more resistant to an infection. It almost seems like once it gets up under the soft tissue of the nose, maybe it's a little bit immunoprotected uh, and, and maybe an infection can kind of take hold a little bit more. So because the consequences of an infection after a rhinoplasty can be fairly significant, my preference is to give people a week of a cephalosporin antibiotic. Uh, and they, in general, tolerate that very well. I um, encourage them to eat yogurt or take a probiotic. Um, and it's exceedingly rare that we ever have to discontinue that uh, during that week. So it tends to be well tolerated. And uh, my infection rate is presently 1% or a little bit less. So that, that's, I think that that's probably pretty reasonable. But again, the most important thing, I think, is the wound care. So that one-day post-op visit, I think, is absolutely uh, really a, an important part of that. Do you expect any changes in a rhinoplasty result over time? Absolutely. That's a fantastic question. As I mentioned earlier, you know, this is a four-dimensional operation, and so that time component is so critical. You have to see people back long-term if you really want to learn from your results. If you sort of tell people, well, you're all done, it's a year, you know, let me know if you have any issues, they won't come back and you won't see what the long-term consequences are of what you did. And that's really your best teaching tool. So as much as you can, I always encourage my patients to come back long-term. Now, sometimes that's challenging because many of my patients come from, from quite a ways away. And you know, the last thing they want to do is buy a plane ticket and pay for a night in a hotel to come back and tell me that everything's okay. So you know, that can sometimes be a problem uh, in its own way, but I guess that's a good problem to have. Aside from other common complications uh, that we discussed in the rhinoplasty for breathing episode, another undesirable surgical outcome we often hear about is postoperative deformity. What are some of these deformities and how do you typically avoid them? Yeah, so there's um, quite a few things, unfortunately, that can kind of go wrong uh, with the rhinoplasty because there are so many variables related to what you're trying to do. You know, one of the worst things that probably you could do is give someone nasal obstruction where they didn't have it beforehand. You know, maybe with harvesting the cartilage out of the septum for grafting, uh, weaken things and now the septum is bent or, you know, maybe because of some suture techniques, the, the external valve is too narrow or maybe you forgot to or didn't think you had to reconstruct the middle vault after taking down the dorsal hump and now they've, uh, you know, got some pinching in the middle third and their internal valve is compromised. So, you know, you really have to be thinking in a preventive way uh, to minimize these things. You can also get scarring inside the nose, you know, something like synechia. That should be extremely rare. I think if you're being careful and can avoid mucosal injuries and, and put something in there, whether it's, uh, you know, the splints that I mentioned or something else, the likelihood of getting scarring inside the nose should be almost a never event. If it does happen, you know, you can divide that and place some splints in there until things have healed and then take the splints out. Other sort of named deformities uh, that, that sometimes um, can happen are one thing is called a rocker deformity, and that's where the osteotomies uh, maybe extend a little too far cephalically. Uh, and as you try to medialize the uh, nasal bones, 
instead of fracturing where you want it to, it'll continue up into the glabella and um, maybe head towards the frontal sinus a little bit. And as you push in on the bones, that part comes out kind of like a seesaw. Um, and so the w best way to minimize that is really just draw an imaginary line uh, between the medial canthi and don't make your osteotomies go above that. Now you can get step-offs on the lateral nasal wall. And if your lateral osteotomies are a little too high up on the nose uh, toward the dorsum, uh, then as you medialize them, you kind of have this sharp edge. So I try to make my lateral osteotomy really where the, the sort of the face of the maxilla turns into uh, the sidewall of the nose. And by placing it there, you can, you can minimize the, the likelihood of a step off. And then I mentioned earlier the open roof deformity, and that's from taking down a dorsal hump and having a bit of a gap between the nasal bone and the perpendicular plate of the ethmoid. And so you can either fix that by medializing uh, the bones, or you can place uh, spreaders that extend up uh, into that gap. Uh, in the middle third, I've already mentioned an inverted V deformity, but I haven't really described what it is. An inverted V deformity is where the upper lateral cartilages uh, lose their attachment to the dorsal septum, uh, typically as a consequence of taking down a dorsal hump, and that allows them to kind of fall into the nose a bit. And so then on the front view, what you end up looking at is you see a fairly abrupt transition from a narrow middle third to the face of the piriform aperture. And so it looks like this sort of upside down V, uh, and that's where the name comes from. So the best way to prevent that is to reconstruct that middle vault by at least sewing the upper lateral cartilages back to the septum, but oftentimes placing some spreader grafts to maintain an appropriate width for that broad tip aesthetic line and uh, potentially for nasal breathing as well. Also in the middle third, you can have a saddle nose deformity. And so if during your septoplasty or if during your septal cartilage harvest, you've either disarticulated the cartilage at the keystone area, or if you've left an inadequate amount of cartilage along the dorsum of the septum, um, I tend to leave about a centimeter and a half, but if it's too thin, uh, that can kind of cave in. And uh, the way you need to fix that is if it's just, if it seems stable and it's just slight, uh, you can kind of fill it in with a contour graft. But if it's more structural, then you may need to reconstruct it with some fairly heavy duty uh, spreader grafts and maybe then an on-light graft on top of that. I mentioned the parentheses deformity a little bit. This is, is more in the, in the tip. And this is where the caudal edge of the lateral cruce ends up being uh, too close to the uh, septum. Other things that you can have happen in the tip are bossa formation. And this is where you get kind of like some folding and knuckling uh, at the domes that can show through the skin as sort of these sharp edges or sharp contours. Uh, probably the easiest way to prevent that is just don't overly tighten sutures and try not to divide the cartilages right at the dome. If you can follow those two principles, uh, the likelihood of bossa formation is, is pretty low. I mentioned uh, some causes of ailer retraction, whether that's an excessive cephalic trim or deprojecting the tip uh, significantly. And so, you know, just be, be aware of, of, of that as a, as a possibility. Again, deprojection, if you don't address the mediocura, you could create a hanging columella, uh, or it could just be something that maybe was overlooked. And so, you know, that doesn't look good on the front view or on the profile view. And in counterpoint to that, you can have a retracted columella. 
And that can happen from taking too much of the caudal septum away, uh, which is why I tend not to trim that. If anything, I'll, I'll set the medial pleura back onto it, uh, but it's pretty rare that I need to, need to trim that. The most likely time that I would trim the caudal septum is if I'm deep projecting someone's nose, and then in that case, the posterior septal angle uh, can, can end up being a little bit too far uh, interior. And then another thing that can happen on the profile view uh, is you can have a polybeak deformity. And that can be uh, due to a couple of reasons. One is that perhaps you didn't recognize that the medial crew were short, and maybe you took down a polybeak by trimming it, but you didn't support the base of the nose, and so the tip drops back, loses projection, and then you have another polybeak. That's fairly, with supporting the base, fairly easy to prevent. The, the more challenging thing is when the polybeak is almost something that gets built into your operation. And so an example of that would be a patient who needs a fair amount of rotation, uh, who has fairly thick skin. And so as you rotate the tip, that thick skin is going to want to kind of bunch up. Um, and so there are some techniques that you can use um, minimize the appearance of that. Uh, you can try to gently thin the skin. Don't be too aggressive because you could cause necrosis of the skin or uh, telangiectasia formation or other uh, sorts of skin damage. Um, there are some medicines that people have tried using, uh, Kenalog shots afterwards or 5-fluorouracil, other medical treatments like that. You can place a stitch uh, in the super tip down to the nasal dorsum and in extreme cases uh, ex actually excise some skin. That's pretty uncommon though. But that's probably um, one of the more frustrating things to try to deal with is a uh, soft tissue polybeak that fills up with edema uh, in a thick skin patient. In general, in terms of revisions, it's often quoted uh, somewhere between uh, 10 and 15% of rhinoplasties may result in a revision. The conventional wisdom is that you want to wait a year before proceeding. I don't know that that's a blanket, you know, rule. Um, you know, if someone as the swelling has gone down, if it's three months out from surgery and there's the edge of your spreader graft is kind of poking up a little bit, you don't have to make them wait a year. You know, that's not going to get better on its own. And it's also important to understand what it means to have a revision. You know, I think it sounds like, oh my gosh, we're going to go back to the operating room and do the whole thing all over again. But I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I think, at least for me, the most common type of revision that I would do is something that's much smaller uh, you know, maybe a needle shave in the office or, you know, a little, some kind of touch-up of some sort under local anesthesia. And so it doesn't have to be like a whole big do-over. Um, and depending on what the problem is, sometimes you do want to wait for the swelling to go down so that you have better feedback. Uh, but there's other times that, uh, you know, you know it's not going to get better. It's something that's solid, cartilage, bone, something like that. And so maybe you can do it a little bit sooner. In terms of follow-up, for how long do you typically follow these patients postoperatively? Um, my typical kind of peri and postoperative appointment schedule is to see them the day before. And that's where we do the consent. We get them a little kit uh, with all the supplies that they need to take care of their nose, some real specific instructions. We get them the prescriptions. They have everything they need for the next day. Then I see them on the day of surgery. And then I see them on post-up day one. And that schedule works out because I operate every other day. So that, that worked perfectly. But on post-up day one, I can answer the new questions that they have and they can demonstrate the wound care. And then I see them in a week, and at the one-week visit, we take off the cast, uh, take out the splints and the little bolsters, take out the stitches. And then I typically see them, it depends on where they live. If they lived in town, I'd probably see them at a month, and then three months, six months, and then a year, and then annually. But for the patients who live farther away, sometimes we'll 
adjust that schedule. Uh, and at a minimum, I might want to see them at six months and then at a year and then annually. Telemedicine can be really helpful for those things. The 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 main drawback to that, though, is that I don't get to get pictures. <laughs> so uh, it's really good to have some nice standardized post-operative photos. Uh, and no matter how good of a photographer and careful the patients might actually be, anything that they send you is not going to be remotely close to what you did at their pre-op visit. Uh, but certainly for some of those fill-in visits, it might be great, but I'd, I'd really like to have at least one in-person visit, maybe at the one year or a little bit later. Uh, but yeah, tele telehealth and virtual visits uh, are really an emerging helpful tool, um, not just because of COVID, but because of distance. And before we wrap up with a summary and some review questions, did you have anything else that you'd like to add, Dr. Hamilton? I think the most important thing that I would like people to take away from this, because almost everything that I've said, you can probably find, you know, written down somewhere. So it's not the information in this episode by itself that I think is extremely unique or important. I think it's the context. And so if people take only one thing away from this episode, I hope it is that they understand how important it is to have a crystal clear idea of what they're trying to make in the operating room. Because once you have that, then all the things that you might read about suddenly make a lot more sense because now you have a, an intellectual and visual framework to hang those techniques on because you actually know what you're trying to make. All right. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you for having me. To briefly summarize a very comprehensive discussion, rhinoplasty for nasal deformity is very interrelated with rhinoplasty for nasal breathing, and often improvement in aesthetic outcome leads to functional improvement as well. A careful assessment of nasal anatomy and the interplay between these structures is very complex and needs to be meticulously evaluated in each patient for surgical planning. During the history, it's important to elucidate the patient's motivations and goals for surgery in addition to more standard history components such as prior nasal trauma or surgery, medical comorbidities, and drug use. As always, pre- and post-operative photo documentation should be obtained both for surgical planning and outcome tracking. We focus broadly on surgical correction of the nasal tip, uh, nasal dorsum, and nasal base with a variety of surgical approaches discussed for each like we discussed in our rhinoplasty for nasal breathing episode, postoperative care includes splinting, reducing risk factors for postop edema, and activity restriction. Now I'll move on to a couple of review questions. As always, I'll ask the question, wait a moment to give you time to think of the answer or pause the podcast, and then give the answer. So starting off, we discussed the pathophysiology behind a number of nasal deformities. What are some causes of saddle nose deformity? Saddle nose deformity is ultimately caused by lack of septal support underlying the nasal dorsum. This can be from prior surgery that did not leave adequate septal integrity, trauma, particularly with septal hematoma and resulting cartilage compromise, cocaine use, vasculitis like GPA, relapsing polychondritis, and infectious etiologies like leprosy or syphilis. Second up, what are the three main approaches to a rhinoplasty? The 
The three main approaches to rhinoplasty are endonasal non-delivery, endonasal delivery, and open rhinoplasty. Non-delivery is usually used with dorsal irregularities, whereas delivery allows for more exposure of the lower lateral cartilage and better tip manipulation. Note that we are quote-unquote delivering uh, the lower lateral cartilages. The open approach provides maximal exposure for extensive tip work and graft placement, but remember this can lead to more edema and disrupts interdermal ligaments. And finally, describe the inverted V deformity. The inverted V deformity occurs when the upper lateral cartilages collapse or disarticulate from the nasal septum, resulting in a pinching of the middle third of the nose that is aesthetically undesirable and can narrow the internal nasal valve. That wraps up this episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.